New York Yankees legend and Hall of Famer Yogi Berra was known for his statements that got people scratching their heads and thinking, trying to figure it out. Here are some examples. Um, pair up in threes. Baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical. See, you've got to think a little bit, don't you? Uh, he said, you can observe a lot by watching. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. There's a kind of a ripple that works its way back here. Um, the future ain't what it used to be. You should always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> Nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. It, it's late, early out here. His famous, yeah, his famous one, it ain't over till it's over, yeah. Uh, during his earthly ministry, Jesus often made statements that caused people to pause, scratch their heads, think about it, um, trying to figure out such things that he said, or, or, or perhaps, you know, thinking, well, that doesn't make sense, or I can't do that, or I don't want to do that. Last week, we considered his statement, love your enemies. Who wants to do that? This morning, we come to another of Jesus' sayings that are somewhat difficult to, to swallow. Um, it goes against the grain of what most people in Jesus' day thought. And it's pretty contrary to what you'll hear many preachers, particularly in television, saying today. Here's his statement. It's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now before we get into the saying itself, we have to see the context within which Jesus makes this rather remarkable statement. Uh, it begins with a conversation that he has with a seeker of eternal life. And Jesus is going to start it out with a question. If you have your Bibles you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, or grab a Bible in front of you there, page 1076, the second book in your New Testament, Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10, and the question that comes to Jesus by this young man is in verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When we look at the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all tell this story, we learn that this young man is very wealthy. He's also a, a ruler. He's a person of some official standing. Uh, but there is in his question a presumption that there's something that he could do. Jesus, give me the formula. Just, just lay it out for me, the list of things that I need to do to earn eternal life. Now, while people may not use those same words today, uh, that's certainly evident of the way that they're living, that there's a similarity here. The answer that I get most often to the question of why should God let you into my heaven is, well, I, I, I live a good life. You know, there, there's a lot of good things in my life that outweigh the bad there. Um, 
It seems to be a common view of what it takes to get into heaven. You know, many people, I think, believe that on the day of judgment, God's going to pull out a big balance scale. And then he's going to take all the good things that you've done, he's going to put it on one side and all the bad things on the other. And if it tips the right way, you'll go to heaven. Um, It seems to be the sentiment of this young man who comes to Jesus. Now, no doubt, he's thinking in terms of Jewish works of righteousness. You know, teacher, lay out the good path of works here that I might do them and then have eternal life. Jesus sobers them up. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I don't know, maybe the young man is kind of doing this kind of as a way of flattery, you know, speaking kind of as one good guy to another. Uh, But Jesus says, listen, God alone is good. And so you need to know that if you call me good, then you are acknowledging the relationship that I have with my Father. Jesus then lays out some requirements. Verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. It's interesting to consider why Jesus mentions these particular commandments. I think he does it for a purpose, and the purpose is that they're all external. They're all related to human relationships. They are, when you think about it, the easiest ones of the commandments to fulfill. And so the young man gives his response, verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. I've kept them all. You know what? I think this young man was sincere. I think that he was, before the law, blameless. Jesus' reply to him indicates as much. Look in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. In the language of the Greek New Testament, literally, he fell in love with him. There was something so winsome, so so pure in this sense about this young man. And standing before Jesus was an externally righteous and blameless man. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, was very much like this young man. In Philippians chapter 3, speaks about his moral condition. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This rich young ruler stood before Jesus and with a sincere conscience said, I am blameless. And in response, Jesus felt a great love for him. There was a connection that Jesus felt with this guy. We see the great love of Christ here, an embracing compassion for this young man. And then Jesus lays out the requirement for this seeker. The end of verse 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
Why does Jesus make this particular demand of him? I think it is because he identified the one thing in his life that would hinder him. The barrier that was, that was there, that was unrevealed, unchallenged, unquestioned, and Jesus put his finger on it. You're going to have to do something about this. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. When Jesus engaged this young man in a discussion regarding right standing before the law, he focused first on those commandments that were external. But now he flips it around and now he goes to the internal. Now he goes into that which, was, which is, is, is the heart of his belief system, his value system, and in so doing, he exposes the true fault of this misguided seeker. Because you see, the commandments begin with the most important one, the most significant one, the most crucial one, the one from which all the others flow, and it's this, you shall have no other gods before me. Old Testament scholars tell us that there are several meanings involved in the word before in that passage out of Exodus 20. Uh, it can mean instead of. No gods instead of me. No substitute for God. Nothing that will replace God as the object of your worship, of your allegiance. So nothing that takes the place of God. It can also mean in front of. That is, you shall have no other gods that are in front of me, that is, before my face. In the Hebrew culture, if a man really wanted to put down his wife, he would bring another woman into her presence standing beside him in her face. And that's what God is saying. I don't want anything in my presence, in my face, that will be an affront to me. I don't want any competitors. It can also mean in addition to. No other gods even in addition to me. Because here's the reality, folks. Those other gods will smother. They, they, they will crowd out the true God if we're not careful, whatever it might be. So we have to see that anything that takes the place of God in our hearts, in our minds, in our focus, in our affections, becomes an idol. It might be career, it might be school, a job, another person, power, position, status, possessions, retirement portfolio, myself, whatever it might be that becomes the primary focus of my life. Listen, all those other things are important. God has given you all those things to enjoy, but watch out where your affections lie. For the young man here, it's his possessions. It's his wealth. He was unwilling to give up his riches. And listen, he missed the tremendous opportunity of becoming a disciple of Jesus. He was invited to come, follow him, be his disciple. But he just couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't give it up. I would probably not be far off the mark to say that this is one of the greatest barriers in America today for responding to the gospel or in the lives of believers responding to a real call to discipleship. What is it about money and wealth and possessions that make them such hurdles and such barriers and stumbling blocks to responding to God's call to discipleship? 
Let me give you some thoughts. First of all, is there's just too much to give up? I was in a discussion group long ago with Dr. Howard Hendricks of Dallas Seminary when someone asked him this question. Um, why do you think there are so few really wealthy and successful people who are disciples of Christ? The answer, Hendricks said, they've got too much to give up. Second is, I think they give a false sense of security. Jesus tells a story that illustrates the point. Turn over to the next book, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Let's look at this story that Jesus tells. Luke chapter 12. And I'm going to start reading at verse 13. Luke 12, starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When money and the pursuit of wealth becomes the focus of our lives, it's amazingly elusive. It is oh so temporal. When I was working with endpoverty.org before coming to Knollwood, we did a lot of fundraising out in Silicon Valley. I mean, it, these were the glory days out there. But then in the tech bust in the 90s, one of our donors lost $40 million of net worth in two weeks. Tell me that having wealth is a guarantee of the future. One of the stories I heard Bill Bright tell decades ago was about a group of the world's most successful financiers meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Collectively, at that time, these tycoons controlled more wealth than there was in the United States Treasury. For years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories and urging the youth of the nation to follow their examples. But just 25 years later... This is what happened to them. Charles Schwab, the president of the largest independent steel company, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died penniless. Arthur Cotton, the greatest wheat speculator, died abroad insolvent. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, was released from serving time in Sing Sing Prison. Albert Fall, a member of the president's cabinet, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street, committed suicide. Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlement, committed suicide. Ivan Kruger, head of the world's greatest monopoly, committed suicide. All of these men had learned how to make money, but not one of them had learned how to live. They must have felt secure at some point of the future because of their great wealth. 
Jesus said it so well, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and yet they lose their soul? Here's another thing about possessions and wealth. They divert from the proper focus. Now, here's the risk anytime you ever speak on any of this stuff is that people's minds just start going out here to the end, you know, without realizing that there's wonderful balance in the Scripture. And I think Paul, the apostle, gives a very balanced perspective to those who have material means. Look what he wrote to Timothy. He said, Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with things, all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Do you see the balance in there? Some of the most generous, big-hearted people that I know are some of the most wealthy people I know. Some of the people that are the most tight-fisted and stringent are those with little. So you see, it really, it's all about attitude. It's not amount. It's all about what's happening in the heart there. But by the world's measurement, probably all of us in this room would be considered wealthy. I traveled several places uh, into the third world, the developing countries, uh, the Philippines and Mexico and Nicaragua, places like that. You know, when, I, when you compare that to who we are in this room and in this town, in this country, uh, from, in most cases we have everything that we need uh, and we have much of what we want. Um, but probably what happens is so often uh, what we have doesn't satisfy us. We want more. Warren Wearsby notes, money is a marvelous servant, but a terrible master. Listen, we can do so much good with the resources that God gives to us. Um, I, I, I praise God for people who have wealth that God has given them generous hearts because they can do so much good. Um, and so that's one perspective. But they can also become an overbearing, tyrannical master if we fall under the control. We're not exempt from that. Exiled on the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John was given revelations into future events. And he was instructed to write churches to cities in Asia. When he got to the letter of the church of Laodicea, here's what he wrote. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And what's the reason for their lukewarmness? What's the condition that brought this judgment of God upon themselves? He says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus must have anticipated the question in the disciples' minds when they heard what he was saying to this rich young ruler. Uh, and that's what leads us to this second saying of Jesus that I kind of sometimes wish he hadn't said. It's a, it's a tough one because he meddles in the area that we don't like meddling. Um, go to the text again, Mark chapter 10, verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. 
But Jesus said to them again, children, it's, it, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Most Jews in Jesus' day expected the wealthy to inherit eternal life. Oh, not, not because they could somehow purchase such a reward, but that their riches signified that they were blessed by God and honored by Him. They were recipients of God's blessings. You know, they had their own version of our 21st century prosperity gospel. Material possessions were an indication of your standing before God. So if you were righteous, God blessed you with stuff. And, and, and if you didn't have stuff, it indicated that there was something wrong with you. God was withholding his blessing from you. God was judging you. Jesus continues to use the example of those who would not trust in him but in his riches. And so he says... It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, some today want to soften this a little bit by saying that Jesus was referring to a gate into the city called the Needles Gate. And a camel that was loaded down with goods could not pass through the gate. But if the load was removed and the camel got down on its knees, it could barely squeeze through. Sounds good, doesn't it? You know, that means with a little effort, a little humility, it's doable. But Jesus is not saying if the rich man would just get down on his knees, he can somehow barely squeeze through. And so you see that that's what precipitates this question from the disciples. Well, if that's the case, then how can anybody be saved? See, Jesus is talking about a literal needle and a literal camel, the largest animal in Palestine. And he's pointing out how impossible this is. For if our wealth or whatever idol in our lives is more important than God, we won't trust in Christ. We'll trust in those things. Jesus says that eternal life is beyond the reach of any human, beyond any attainable achievement that we could have. So it points out this, this in, in, insurmountable gulf between God and between us. And it's only when we come to see how bad our sin is, when we see how bad off we are apart from Christ because of our self-centeredness, are we then ready to cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of God, which he so freely gives. Jesus says that that, that which is impossible for people to earn, God can grant. It's called grace. It's a gift, the unmerited favor of God. There is nothing you can do. It's only what you're willing to receive. That, that's, that's the ultimate end of the gospel. Somehow this got Peter thinking. And so he, he expresses to Jesus what's on his mind, as Peter always did. Um, back in Mark 10, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers 
and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says, Peter, listen, what you think you're losing, I'm going to repay to you. Um, you're going to be part of a great family of faith. Um, I'm going to bless you. Oh, by the way, there's going to be persecutions too. But in the end, eternal life. Is that worth it to you, Peter? You know, we have no promises of, eter- of earthly wealth or prosperity as a result of following Christ. Look in the Bible. Some of the most afflicted people were the most righteous. There's no guarantee. But all that we do have comes from his hand. And if he chooses to bless you, be a responsible steward knowing that God will hold you accountable for those blessings. If he chooses to give you less, cultivate a heart of contentment and gratitude for what you do have and be a responsible steward over what he has given to you. But know this most of all, you have a reward in heaven. Oh, I think sometimes the way we live our life is like someone has come and, and driven spikes through our f- shoes and feet into the, into the earth. We are so bound here. We don't realize this is such a small slice of eternity. All that God's prepared for us yet to come. In closing, let me ask some questions. Have you come to the point in your life where you know that you have eternal life? And when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What will be your answer? Have you willingly set aside anything that you're tempted to trust in as a basis of salvation? Good works are all important, but they come after that. But it's this important thing of coming to believe the good news of the gospel. When I was a little boy, my parents would often pull us in front of our little black and white TV set And we would watch Billy Graham crusades on TV. Millions of people uh, have been moved by the song of invitation that was always sung at the end of that crusade. Uh, Hear the words. If it's probably a familiar song to you, if you grew up in church, and if you didn't, something new. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within, fears without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown hath broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That's the invitation God gives you. Most of you here, maybe all of you here, have already done that. Come into a relationship with God because of what Jesus did for you. But if not, this is the kind of message I don't want to end without giving you the opportunity to do so. And so as we close, I'm going to close in prayer. God looks at our hearts. The words really aren't important. Uh, But it's our choice to choose to give up anything we're depending upon to make it to heaven, to be pleasing to God. He says, you can't do it. It's not enough. 
uh, everything you've done that's good and well, good for you, but it just doesn't measure up to what Jesus did for you. And only when we come to the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for us does God freely then of his grace give us our salvation, forgiveness of sins, a clean heart. Oh, people are in the hospitals today because of guilt, because they don't have a clean heart. And Jesus says, let me do that for you. So let's, let's join in prayer. And, and if, if maybe you're here this morning, maybe you've been in church all your life, maybe the first time you've walked into church today, but this strikes a chord with you, that you would like to know God, you would like to have a relationship with him, you would like your sins to be forgiven and know the promise of eternal life. Just tell them. Admit that you're a sinner, uh, that you acknowledge that Jesus is the only way. His death is sufficient to cover all of your sins, now and forever. And invite him to come into your heart. Put your trust in him. And then thank him that he's heard your prayer, that he has come into your life, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you, He's forgiven all of your sins. He's made you a new person. Father, I pray that we might walk as men and women, boys and girls that know you, that have experienced your salvation. And we thank you for that wonderful gift of your son, that his death was sufficient to satisfy your justice, and that you begin something new in us, and you want to live in us, and you want to, to make our hearts and our lives over into the image of Jesus. May we willingly participate in that process. And we thank you for the promise of eternal life that awaits every one of us that have trusted in you, that the moment we pass from this earth, we pass into your very presence. May that encourage us today and through every day until that day comes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.